Welcome to Frontline Church, South OKC's podcast, where each week we upload a new sermon from our sermon series. If you have any questions or concerns or need prayer for anything, feel free to reach out at hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you. The scripture for today's sermon comes from John chapter 15, verses 9 through 17. The word of God speaks to us. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is God's word to us. Thank you. Well, it's really good to be together with you guys. Let's pray and we'll dive in. Father, um, even as I heard your word read, I'm just struck with the immensity of your love. Your love isn't a concept. It's not some sort of high ideal. It's not a moral imperative. Before it's anything else, it's a a person. You tell us in your word that you are love. So my prayer this morning, God, is that you would open our eyes to see you, that we would see the one who is love. God, and that your love would reorient things that are out of order in us. Would your love heal things that are broken in us and sick in us? Father, would your love restore things that are lost in us? Would your love illuminate things that are dark in us? Brothers and sisters, I just had this strong burden when when I got here this morning, like everything we need, everything we long for is found in the love of the Most High God. There's nothing you need to do to posture yourself for that. You can't earn it. You can't win it. You can't pay for it. But he'll give it to you freely right now. So living, loving God, would you draw us into your love? Would you reveal your love to us? And would you change us by your love? I pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. I want to start with two quotations this morning or two conversations. The first conversation I want us to look into is a conversation between Jesus and an attorney in Matthew chapter 22. This is verses 34 to 40 of Matthew chapter 22. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. 
And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Again, he's not looking for information, right? This is a trap. What's the most important thing, he asks Jesus? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now what's happening here in this moment is this lawyer is trying to trap Jesus with one of the most common conversations the religious people would have had in that day. There were over 600 some odd commandments in the Jewish texts and the Jews were always gathering together going, well, which is the most important one out of all the 613? Which, which out of the 613 summarize all the other ones? What they were doing really is asking the question, what is the most important thing? So this guy wasn't trying to learn something from Jesus, he was trying to sort him into a box. But you need to realize the question he's asking is critical for us in this moment, regardless of the man asking it, the question's motives. What's the most important thing in the universe? The lawyer asks Jesus. And Jesus says, the most important thing is actually two things. Love the Lord your God with the totality of your being. And out of that love will flow love for people. There's an extended quotation from a Christian philosopher I want to read to you that talks about the same thing. This is Jamie Smith from his book, You Are What You Love. And he starts with this question for us this morning. What do you want? That's the question. It is the first, last, and most fundamental question of Christian discipleship. In the Gospel of John, it's the first question Jesus poses to those who would follow him. When two would-be disciples who were caught up in John the Baptist's enthusiasm begin to follow him, Jesus wheels around on them and pointedly asks, what do you want? John 1.38. It's the question that's buried under almost every other question Jesus asks each of us. Will you come and follow me? Is another version of, what do you want? as is the fundamental question Jesus asks of his errant disciple Peter, do you love me? Jesus doesn't encounter Matthew and John or you and me and ask, what do you know? He doesn't even ask, what do you believe? He asks, what do you want? This is the most incisive, piercing question Jesus can ask of us precisely because we are what we want. Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. Our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicenter of the human person. Thus, Scripture counsels, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it, Proverbs 4.23. Discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. 
So discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than of knowing and believing. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all, a vision encapsulated by the shorthand phrase, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, which that's what we're about as a church. Everything we do, everything we preach, the way in which we're inviting all of us to like submit our longings and our loves and our cares and our attitudes and our behaviors is all about drawing us into the kingdom of God. Everything we do in terms of preaching and acts of mercy in the city, the way we gather together in community is all oriented around how we're equipping one another by God's grace to submit our lives and be formed under the kingdom of God. And the simple way we summarize that as a church is we say that we exist to multiply gospel communities that love God, love people, and push back darkness. And that's not branding for us. That's not uh, sloganeering. It is the way that we keep the essence of the kingdom of God at the center of everything we do. It's not just the E on the I chart for us. It's how we test why we do what we do. It's how we evaluate how we're doing. And so occasionally as a church, we take time to sit back and say, hey, outside of our normal rhythm of just preaching verse by verse through passages of scripture, let's talk about who we are as a church, because it's so easy to get busy with good, well-intended stuff and lose the focus of why we're here in the first place. So we're taking a few weeks to talk about our mission statement, multiplying gospel communities that love God, love people, and push back darkness. Last week, for those of you who were here, Andrew talked about multiplying gospel communities. And next week, for those of you that will be here, Lord willing, Andrew's going to talk about how we do this on the edge of contested space. There are real enemies in this world. There is a real enemy of God and the people of God, and so we labor together to push back darkness. Now, the fun thing for me is I get the delicious center of the cinnamon roll. I get to talk about our commitment to love God and love people. And in addition to getting like the fat part of the bat for me, I get to press into the bizarre ways in which we use the word love. Can we just stop for a second and go, hey, we don't even need to say, well, in Greek, they use four words. No, no, like, let's just talk about it in English. I, I struggle with English. I don't need Greek. Like, we use love in a really bizarre, broad way. We use love to describe romantic attraction. We use love to describe preference. We use love to describe commitment. We even use love in this bizarre way to describe hate. And what I mean by that is we say stuff like, I don't love mustard. Which what we mean is, I hate mustard. I don't want it anywhere near my sandwich. Thank you. But, but we also use love from like all that wide divergence of stuff. To describe it, I think, I think this use of love is why we've actually multiplied such a broad use of love because the essence of love for us, even in our vocabulary, describes this deep, controlling, central devotion for us. 
Like we, we, we understand the use of the word love to describe the driving desire of our soul, which is why we can use it in cheeky ways about our distaste of condiments on sandwiches. But, but love as an overarching, centralizing, orienting desire and devotion is the way I want us to talk about what it means to love God. And in this sense of the word, what love really means is worship. The clearest sense of like how we use love at its most dense core is I worship that. I orient my life around that. I'm devoted in the core of everything I think, do, eat, sleep, pursue for that. That is my essence. And that's what worship is. Listen to how Harold Best defines the word worship, and it's in this sense that I want us to talk about loving God today. Harold Best says this, worship is at once about who we are, about who or what our God is, and about how we choose to live. Nobody does not worship. That's an important concept for those of you in this room that aren't followers of Jesus. You're worshiping someone or something. You're worshiping right now. And Bess continues. He says, we begin with one fundamental fact about worship. At this moment and for as long as this world endures, everybody inhabiting it is bowing down and serving something or someone. An artifact, a person, an institution, an idea, a spirit, or God through Christ Everyone is being shaped thereby and is growing up towards some measure of fullness, whether of righteousness or of evil. No one is exempt and no one can wish to be. We are, every one of us, unceasing worshipers and will remain so forever. This is what we mean when we say as a church, everything we're doing is oriented around multiplying gospel communities that love God. It's like real question for you this morning. This isn't just like preacher speak or some form of rhetoric. It's a real question. What do you love? What do you love? Or to put it in Jamie Smith's terminology, what do you want? In chapter two of Jamie Smith's book, by the way, You Are What You Love, is titled something like, You Might Not Love What You Think You Love. What do you want? What do you really want? What are you orienting everything in your life around? Because regardless of your terminology, that is what you love, and that is God for you. And what we long for as a people is to find the fullness and the joy and the satisfaction and the completion as human beings to love what is above everything else worthy of our love, and to order our lives around that. That's what we mean when we talk about loving God. But we don't actually love people the same way. Now, some of you do. Some of you love people as God. And you've decided that the affection of people or the acceptance of people or the applause of people or maybe even the affirmation of your children is the supreme desire for you. So you love people in a way that a human being should only love God. 
And if that's you this morning, what my prayer is that a, a right understanding of loving God will reorient how you love people. Because check this out. If you love people as supreme, if you make people God in your life, you can never actually love them truly. You're always trying to get something from them. So all your actions toward them don't flow out of a heart of satisfaction in God meeting all your needs. You're trying to look to them to meet your needs. What, what I want us to see this morning is loving God as our ultimate satisfaction and the center of our devotion in our lives frees us to live rightly as human beings and love other people as we long to do. So what I want to do with us in our time this morning is pretty simple. I just want us to listen in in a, in a quick summary fashion to Jesus' words in John 15. And I want us to gain a deeper understanding of what it means to love God and love people through Jesus' words here. And then I pray that as we do that, the Spirit of God would move in us in such a way that we reorder our loves or just order our loves. Which, by the way, that's what's a great thing about what we do in gathering as a body every Sunday. Part of what we're doing is we're just reordering our loves. We're coming together. We're saying, God, the one true God, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is supreme, is the supreme object of love in the universe. We get to tell him that, declare that, delight in that. Then we get to take time to say, hey, there are places in my life where I haven't loved you supremely. God, would you forgive me for that? Repentance, by the way, if it's bogged up in your mind, it's like, that's just a weird church word. Repentance just means I'm going to turn and walk the opposite way. God, I've, I've been pursuing these loves, and they're not worthy of you, nor are they worthy of my devotion. I will turn and walk back towards you as the one who alone is worth my devotion. And then we get to remind one another, he's worthy of our love. He's loved us freely to cover our lovelessness, and then we're sent out into the world to be ambassadors of his love. That, that's what we do on a Sunday. So if you're ever like, man, it's cold outside, man, I don't want to get up, like, you actually need to have your loves reordered and re-energized, as do I. So we come together, not because, like, we're paying our dues or checking the box. We come together to ask the one who is love to reorder our loves. So I want to do that with you. And then I want to talk about expectations that we have as a church because I think some of the most loveless things that Christians are doing in this moment in history right now flow out of messed up expectations of what we have is what it means to love people. I realize it's a long introduction, but turn your Bibles to John 15 and let's talk about love. Loving God and loving people. John 15 comes right in the middle, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible or John's gospel, comes right in the middle of what we call the farewell discourse which this is Jesus about to be betrayed and crucified for the sins of the world. And so the conversation and the focus in John's gospel shifts from Jesus having a broad message spoken to a broad group of people to Jesus now having a very focused message to his closest and most clear companions and disciples. And as you can imagine, as he's about to offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, much of what he talks about with his disciples here is love. And so as Jesus calls us to love, look at verse uh, 9 and 10 of John 15. As the Father has loved me, he tells his disciples and us, 
so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Now, I want you to notice that. If we get to verse 10, I guess I should read verse 10 as well. If, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his. The love that Jesus is calling us to when we talk about loving God is both mystical and moral. What do I mean by that? Well, he spent the first eight verses of John 15 talking about being connected to him like a branch is connected to a vine. Like you, you pull nutrients and life and orientation. And Jesus says, abide in me that way and abide in my love that way. Well, that's a mystical reality. That's a spiritual thing that doesn't just happen like on the ground with us in real time. This is a reality that transcends space and time. But it's not just a mystical reality. It's a moral one as well. Because he says, if you abide in my love, you'll obey me. You'll do what I say. So what he's telling us is the love of God or our love for God isn't just some sort of concept or some sort of vibe or some sort of ideal that we're never really attaining to or we're never really actually inhabiting, we just talk about. Love looks like something. And we see what love of God looks like in places like Psalm 63, where the psalmist says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek after you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. What does the love of God look like or what does our love for God look like? It looks like orienting every facet of our lives around receiving the full benefit of all that God is for us like a thirsty person would do to get water or a hungry person would do to get food. Our love for God looks like listening to him delighting in him, thanking him for his provision. Have you ever thought about manifesting your love for God just by thanking him for all that he supplies? God, you give us everything freely and without making us feel guilty for needing it. Thank you for wisdom. Thank you for life. Thank you for joy. Thank you for provisions. Repenting when you pursue and fear your love. You know how you show your love for God? You... you you actually will name for him that, God, I loved that more than you. In that moment, God, I loved my comfort more than I loved speaking your truth to that person. I will turn and pursue you. And that might involve me going back and having a different conversation with that person. God, forgive me for pr privileging or, or orienting my comfort above your glory. Loving God looks like communion with him. It looks like forsaking all others in pursuit of him. This, this dates me. But I think one of the greatest illustrations of devotion is seen in Robert De Niro's character in the Michael Mann movie, Heat. Any of you guys seen Heat? I'm not recommending it, and apparently none of you have. It's okay. Or none of you are like, my pastors are looking. I don't want to admit that I've seen Heat. Robert De Niro is a criminal in this movie. And so devoted is he to his life of crime that he doesn't own any furniture. Because in his testimony, he's so committed to crime that he doesn't want to have anything in his life that would distract him and that he couldn't walk away from in 30 seconds or less if he feels the heat around the corner. 
Imagine a life so devoted to crime that you have this amazing oceanfront condo, not a stick of furniture inside of it. What would your devotion to God look like if you started saying, I'm a, I will orient what I have and what I don't have, what I do and what I don't do, what I pursue and what I don't pursue around my devotion to him? That's, that's what loving God looks like. Loving God looks like friendship with him. Turn back to John 15 and hear Jesus' words here. I love this man. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. Loving God looks like friendship with God. And, and I've spent a ton of time over the last few, I don't know, months, I guess, where a friend of me shared this burden from Psalm 25, 14. The friendship of the, the, friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Like that just, that gripped me. I was like, God, I want to be your friend. I actually want to be your friend. And fear in that sense isn't the kind of thing where you're afraid of the dog down the street or you're afraid that that person might fight you. It means you rightly reverence him as sent, like the most gravitational center of the universe. But that phrase, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, is translated really funny. If you ever look at different versions of the Bible, there's really divergent translations of that. It's like some, some translations say the Lord shares his secrets with those who are inside his covenant. You're like, that seems like a really, pretty radical difference between the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. When you see stuff like that in Bible translations, it's because scholars are trying to deal with an idiom. Like a phrase that we say all the time that makes sense to us culturally and contextually, but we actually couldn't translate it to another language easily. I had a football coach who used to always say to me, he was madder than a boiled owl. Like, I've never seen a boiled owl in my lifetime, but I can imagine that an owl being boiled isn't pleasant, and maybe a boiled owl reacts negatively. He would always say, too, he's madder than a scalded dog, and I was like, what does this guy deal with fire and animals? I, I, I don't know, but if I were to try to translate that into another language, that would be the problem. I'm like, uh, not exactly sure how to say he's really mad. That's his point. And that's the point here, because, think about this, you share the secrets of your heart with your friends. That's, that's what's going on in the language. So, so to love God is to unburden the secrets of our heart to him and to actually believe that he shares his secrets with us. That's astonishing. That is astonishing. So we see in places like Proverbs 27 that to, to be friends with God means receiving his counsel. To be friends with God means receive his correction. And Jesus says, hey, with me, love requires obedience. Look at verse 14. You're my friends, John 15, 14, if you do what I command you. Now, let's be super clear. Jesus is not doing that thing that we all tell our kids when they're really young not to do. Which that's like, well, if you give me those Doritos, I'll be your best friend. If you let me have your toy and give it to me, I'll be your best friend. I remember from my earliest of days, that, that's just like innate in a human. We just want to say that to people. And I would say to my kids, don't ever say that. Don't be that kind of person. That request is the opposite of friendship. It's unbelievably selfish and self-centered. It is at its core unloving. And what Jesus is doing here at its core is ultimately loving. He's saying, hey, what I'm about 
is the glorification of the one who's holy and supreme in all the universe and your joy and delight in that. If you're, if you're friends with me, you love what I love, you pursue what I'm pursuing, which is God's glory in our satisfaction forever. Jesus isn't like a kid saying, well, I, if you really love me, you'll give me that thing. He's not saying deprive yourself of anything. He said, if you love me, if you're my friends, you'll be about glutting yourself in the fullness of what I offer you. You're my father. This is unbelievable. I had, I had lunch with a friend a couple of months ago, and this friend was just kind of telling me his life story. And he said, hey, man, at this moment in my life, everything for me changed. I was like, wow, that's a pretty significant moment. Tell me more about that moment. And he said, it was on that day that I decided I would say yes to every single thing Jesus asked of me. And he said, prior to that, I'd said yes to everything that would advance my career. I just decided I would start saying yes to everything that Jesus asked of me. Let me ask you this question. How would your life be different today if you just said, with the Lord of glory, man, I put my yes on the table. Whatever you ask of me, I will do. I, I want to experience the fullness of your friendship, the fullness of your love. And, and, and right now, how many of us are saying yes to whatever might make us money? Yes to whatever might advance our kids in sports or school or reputation or opportunity to get into college or something else? What if we just said, man, I don't have a lot of money. I'm not a super intelligent person. I don't have a lot of power. But one thing I do have is, by God's grace, I will say yes to everything Jesus asks of me. Can you just imagine, like look around this room and imagine how different our communities would be if just you said, hey, whatever he asks of me, I'll say yes. Like, that's what it means to love God. That's what it means to be friends with God. And saying yes to Jesus, putting your yes on the table for Jesus means that you also commit to joyfully love people. Now what's fascinating is loving God and loving people are significantly different things, but they're so intimately bound together because if you love God, you'll order your lives around what he loves and he loves people. So it's like they're, they're talked about in the Bible almost as if they're the same thing, but they're not the same thing. But we've talked about loving God for a minute. And if we're going to be a kind of church that multiplies gospel communities that love God and love people, let's talk for a second about loving people. Like we, we want to order our love for people rightly in terms of our love for God. C.S. Lewis has this famous essay that I think is called First and Second Things, where Lewis says you, you can't take good things, even great things, and make them ultimate things if they're not ultimate things. Because in doing so, he says, not only will you lose everything else around you, but you'll lose the delight in the great thing that you've made an ultimate thing. He uses things like taking care of pets. He's like, if you love taking care of pets, that's a good thing, maybe even a great thing for some of you. But if you make that the, the central devotion around which you orient everything else in your life, Lewis says, not only will you fall out of favor with every person and institution around you because you've become a, you know, just a pet person. I almost said cat lady, but I didn't, didn't mean it like that. Um, but he says, you'll actually lose the joy you have in caring for animals as well. 
That's why every wedding I've ever preached, I look the bride in the eyes and the groom in the eyes and I tell them, you will love him best when you love him less than you love Jesus. You will love her best when you love her less than you love Jesus. Because loving people involves us ordering our love for people, like in a secondary position to our love for God. Listen how one scholar says this. He says, love is practical, self-sacrificial commitment to serve the best interests of other people, especially for their salvation, whatever it costs. This guy orients or defines love for people in terms of giving of ourselves in such a way that points them to order their love in the one who is supremely worthy of all our loves, God himself. So that our love for people flows out of our love for God and directs them towards the God who loves them. So what does people, like what does love for people look like? Because I don't want to just like describe, you know, airy things. I want it to be tangible. And Paul says in Romans 12, chapter 9, that love must be sincere. He means love isn't a vibe Love isn't just pure affection. Love isn't sentimentality. Love looks like something. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15, Paul says love meets other people's needs. What an insane and beautiful statement for Paul to say, I will gladly spend myself and be spent to meet your needs. You want to know what love for people looks like? It looks like selling out to serve other people, exhausting yourself to bless other people, not because you need them to say, man, you're such a generous person, but because God has been so lavish and generous to you in Christ Jesus, you have everything you need, and therefore you can give everything you have to other people so they might see the one who meets all their needs. I will gladly spend myself and be spent. Love looks like looking to others' interests more than your own. Philippians 2, 4. And how many of us even are aware of the fact that we're regularly orienting conversations and relationships around our interests instead of taking an interest in other people? Like, I love this, man. Last week, Cauley family is big chiefs. Family, as you should be. We can talk about that after the service. Um, but we're watching the Chiefs game, and my 13-year-old daughter loves football. She, like, loves the competitiveness of it. She loves the Chief. My son doesn't really care. But I watched my son, like, put aside what he was doing and come sit beside his sister and start asking her questions about the game, not because he cares about football, but because he cares about her. I mean, where, where could we take on the interests of our neighbors? Not, not because it's what interests us, but because they interest us, and them experiencing the love of God interests us. Love looks like generosity, Acts chapter 20, verse 35, where we're reminded of the words of Jesus that it's better to give than to receive. I can quote that better than I believe that. Something still selfish that, that the love of God is like working to transform in me where I, I just want to take stuff for myself. But what I do in that moment is I repent and say, God, you are worth more to me and you satisfy more than all this stuff. And sometimes the way in which you 
like forge those pathways of generosity in your heart to just start giving away stuff that you love. I had a friend that lived in Colorado. He's like, anytime I find something, I think, man, I would be really bummed if I lost that thing. I'd give that thing away. I want to train my heart to love God more than it loves other people. Okay, here's what I want to talk about, because this is just a flyover of loving God and loving people. I mean, it's the central facet of our life. It's the most important thing of everything we do. I won't presume to, like, land that plane perfectly in 30 minutes or less. What I want to talk about, though, in closing is how we understand our expectations about loving God and loving people individually and in community because I think a lot of hurt and a lot of brokenness flows out of really odd expectations that we carry in our brains and in our hearts about what it's supposed to look like as a church when we love God and love people. And I'll get into it this way. In seventh grade, I played basketball. Yeah, just take it in and think about me on the court. I mean, it's everything LeBron and Steph Curry and Jordan and others wish they were all embodied in me or not. At the end of football season in eighth grade, when we're going to our next sports, my football coach comes up to me and he says, hey, man, I've seen you play basketball. You're not good. (laughs) He says, so you have two choices. You can wrestle with me or I'll kill you. I'm here with you today. That should be clear testimony that I wrestled. I've never played basketball again since that day. Um, and, and I was better for it. But, but when it comes to loving God and loving people, I think we'll do well to admit we're way more like me as a seventh grader playing basketball than we are like Michael Jordan or anyone else. Like God is infinitely, eternally, gloriously good at love. It's who he is. It's what makes him up. It's not just that he is loving. He is love. Therefore, he is unfathomably good at love. It doesn't deplete him. He doesn't come home from a long day of loving people and go, it energizes him to be loving. Us, not the same. Like, right? Can we, can we be honest? I mean, we're, we're way more like, who was it, Terrell Owens? Like, I love me some me. I, I don't do great at loving other people or loving God. And, and I think we need to orient our understanding of how we love God and how we love people in the church so that repentance and forgiveness characterize the tenor of our love, not disappointment and judgment and backbiting and gossip and slander. I, I grabbed a book off my shelf the other day trying to find something else, and I saw a book on, on my shelf. I didn't even recognize the title. I was like, what is this book? Is this my book? And I opened it up, and there was a, there was a chapter in the book titled Mixed Field, Mixed Motives, Mixed Results. I don't even know what the book was, but I know that that describes better than anything else how we experience life as people stacked hands to love God and love others in the local church. Mixed field. Some, some of us at Frontline Church claim to be Christians and aren't. Mixed field. Some of us claim not to be Christians and aren't. Mixed field. Mixed motives. Hey, we can't, by the way, perfectly sort out our motives this side of heaven. Our motives are always mixed with a little bit of something funny. It's like, man, this seems really pure and glorious, and also there was that other thing in it. Mixed results. Sometimes we'll do the right thing 
for the right reasons at the wrong time. Sometimes we'll do the wrong thing at the wrong time for the wrong reasons and get great results. Like, it it will just be a mixed field, mixed motives, mixed results. And what I want us to do is own that, to shape our expectations by saying, God is supreme over everything, supremely worthy, supremely satisfying. He deserves the orientation of all my wants and desires. I want God more than anything else, and that shapes the way I want to bless you. And I'm such a bad lover of God and lover of people that God had to die for me. Can we hold those two things together? Lots of times people come and ask Katie and I about our kids. They're like, man, we love seeing your kids. And, and we just want to know, like, what's, what's the thing that shapes your parenting? Like, that's, that's not like one thing. But I'll tell you one thing that has really been a blessing to shape our parenting that somebody else told us before we ever had kids and when we thought we couldn't have them. This guy said to me, you know, the, the baseline for me of how I navigate discipline with my kids is I expect my kids to obey. And I expect them to disobey. Which he meant the standards in our home are that here are the rules, here's what mom and dad ask, you will obey that. You're expected to obey. And when our kids disobey, I don't freak out and lose my mind and either like abandon my principles as a parent or strike my kid or do something wicked because I'm actually expecting them to disobey. What if we oriented our life as frontline church that way? I expect you to love God above all else and to order your love for people around that love. And I expect you to love yourself above all else and to order your love around that love. Because then what we would get to do is we would get to repent. And by the way, not just apologize. I want to see the church do something more than apologies. Like apologies are weird, personally speaking. If you sin against someone, don't apologize. Name the offense. Hey, I said this to you. It was unloving. It was rooted in my own insecurity. I desired to cut you down. Will you please forgive me? That was unloving. Will you forgive me? And the person that's been offended gets to say, yes, I will be like God in that sense. I will will cover over an offense. G.K. Chesterton famously said, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly, which I just love. He says that in in, uh, What's Wrong with the World, but he doesn't mean that as a justification for poor efforts. He means it as an explanation for poor results. If something's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. What if we gave our lives to this? And we can acknowledge, not just in a laissez-faire kind of way, like, oh, I screwed up again, was self-centered and unloving instead of loving God and loving people, we can rightly repent and say, God is supreme. I've dishonored his love and I've dishonored you. Will you not hold that against me? And we can say, yes, yes. And see, that's where John 13.35 gets displayed in technicolor, I believe, in the life of the church. John says in the farewell discourse, By this will all men know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. I don't think he told us that so we could have a baseball bat to beat people when they disappoint us, which is how that verse gets used in social media about the church all the time. 
But what if he gave us that to acknowledge that by this will all men see that we're his disciples, the way we love one another, that we repent when we fail, that we redirect our love to God's glory, his centrality, and his satisfaction. We say, hey, he's worth it all. I will humble myself and ask you to forgive me. And because he's worth it all to you, you will offer forgiveness. And, and then the world says they're doing something different. If we just like cancel one another and cut one another off and the second someone fails you you're done with them that that's not an application of john 13 35 and then you scold them with that verse because they stink so bad at being a friend or they're the worst community group leader ever what if we said hey the way we're going to show god's glory to the world the way we're going to show god's glory to the world is in holding up this high ideal of love and anytime we miss the mark of it we just turn back to him and turn back to him and turn back to him. And we can do so because the one who is love sent his son into a world to die for our lovelessness. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is good news for people who love poorly. And the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is good news for people who have been loved poorly, which is to say, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is good news for you and for me. Will you stand with me and let's pray together? Father, I know that lovelessness has been experienced and dealt out by every single one of us in this room. What we, what we need to do is not punish those who have failed us in love but to turn to the one who is love. So I ask Holy Spirit that you would enable us to do that right now. Some of you will do that for the first time and you'll call today the day that you trusted Jesus. Others of you, you just need to reorder and recenter your love. So Holy Spirit, would you enable us to look to the one who is supremely loving, orient our lives and loves around him. And where we fail to do that, would you let us call that sin? Could we acknowledge and celebrate that you died for that? Can we ask you again to make us clean? So on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And after he blessed it, he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. He's actually modeling this greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. In the same way, after supper, he took a cup of wine. And he said, hey, you may not understand this, but this represents something beyond itself. This represents my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this, all of you, in remembrance of me. So if you're here this morning and you're a baptized follower of Jesus, you've actually declared publicly that your life is built on the hope that Jesus secures for us in dying for our sins and being raised again for our justification. If that's you, come and eat this meal with us. And if that's not you, I, I wanna ask you not to eat this meal with us, not because I wanna make you feel awkward or I wanna be unloving, but because this is a faith meal and we would rather you take Jesus before you take communion with us. So if that's you, there'll be prayers on the screen for you to help you talk to God maybe for the first time in your life. And for those of you who are celebrating this meal with us, whenever you're ready, come and eat.